uh, all eyes on the situation um, in Ukraine right now. Of course, as I mentioned, uh, the Trudeau cabinet meeting today, and they will be weighing further support for Ukraine during their three-day retreat. Uh, on top of that, Global Affairs Canada hit with a significant multi-day disruption of their IT networks. Is that related to the situation in Russia? We don't know for sure, but we do know that last week, Canada's cybersecurity agency issued a warning to infrastructure installations just like that, saying um, be on the lookout for this kind of activity. And some new polling out on this as well, done by Abacus Data, found that 83% of Canadians were in favor, or at least neutral, towards Canada helping Ukraine in protecting their borders. 75% also said they would support or could accept providing weapons to Ukraine. Canada has loaned Ukraine up to $120 million uh, already. So what do we need to do? Are we doing enough? Um, what should our position be? We're going to chat with Hugh Siegel, who's a former chair of the Standing Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs and a Matthews Fellow in the Global Public Policy at Queen's University. Uh, Mr. Siegel, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, good to be with you, Shay. Why don't we start with how Canada has handled itself so far on this file? Uh, you know, Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie has been very active and very busy. She's been overseas. Um, so far, how has Canada been doing on this? I think so far, um, both the new Foreign Minister and our Defence Minister have done and said all the right things in the sense that um, our Foreign Minister was in the Ukraine, was in Brussels, uh, met with our NATO partners, met with our forces on the ground in the Ukraine who are doing important training for the Ukrainian for Armed Forces. Um, our Minister of Defence has made it pretty clear that we may have to send uh, more troops as the circumstance plays itself out. But I think we now have to get out of that kind of cautious step-by-step mode and take a look at what is really necessary to ensure that the Russians do not do what they've done recently in the past, which is invade another country, seize another country so as to protect its own interests in a way which violates the democratic interests of those other countries. We have a whole bunch of NATO allies like Estonia, Lithuania, um, who are on the border of Russia. Um, we have countries like Hungary and Poland who were liberated from the Iron Curtain uh, and from the Warsaw Pact when the Soviet Union came apart. All of those are now within, if you wish, the overall view of Putin in terms of expanding his reach and his territorial presence in that part of the world. And I think now that the Americans are giving serious thought to deploying troops yeah. to Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania uh, to make sure that the Russians understand there's a very big price to pay for doing something that's really unacceptable, I think we should be looking at how we do the same uh, with based on our capacity to do so and to do so before the Russians do something really, really stupid. Um, the question, Mr. Siegel, and like you say, you, you hinted at it there. We're now seeing reports that the uh, European Union uh, is sending in some aircraft and some additional military support. The United States talking openly about that prior to today, really. Much of the discussion has been around diplomatic pressure, uh, economic punishment, sanctions, removal from the global banking system, things like that. Is that enough or do you need to back that up militarily? I would say that um, whilst those kinds of economic sanctions uh, are really serious and will hurt Russia, um, let's, let's be clear about how the Russian government operates. Russia is a country of 158 million people. Its economy is smaller than ours. 
with 36 million people. Its economy is smaller than Italy's, which is 60 million people. They have uh, significant problems of poverty. They don't really have any open democracy or expression of different points of view. This is clearly something that Putin has done in the past to get people's minds off their internal problems within Russia and look at so-called external enemies. I think, therefore, the more we can array with our NATO partners strong determination not to let him do this and to fight back if necessary, and if necessary, send weapons and and send um, material to help the Ukrainians in their fight, uh, that is more likely to constrain him from moving forward than just talking about economic sanctions. Um, and like you say, uh, this is um, not new in terms of uh, a tactic deployed by Putin. We've seen it before. He's, I mean, he actually has invaded Ukraine before, back in 2014. Um, have we d- not done enough? Have we not done enough to sort of um, contain his ambition? Well, when you had the seizure of Crimea, which was a violation of every possible international law by the Russians, and the world really, aside from some modest economic sanctions, did not do very much, that sends a message to Putin, who I think is intellectually very bright and who is a tremendously effective opportunist, if they're not prepared to engage on that, what constraints do I really have? And I think we now have to array clearly military constraints as well as the financial uh, sanctions that would be implied so that so that he understands the cost to Russia and to his own legitimacy as the leader in Russia, don't forget it's not a democratic system, will actually come into play. And unless we do that, we're not really doing all that we can to protect Ukraine from invasion. And, and I'm very conscious of the fact that we have over a million people of Ukrainian extraction in Canada who've made this country stronger and better in so many different ways. And many Canadians have relatives in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So I think going the extra mile with our allies to make sure Putin understands the price he'll have to pay is too high is really something worth doing before he actually tries to invade. Um, when we take a look at Putin and uh, you know some of these activities, uh, there, there is a school of thought that democracy is in peril globally, and we're seeing the advancement of you know authoritarian regimes and some long-standing democracies have slid away from that. I mean, can that fit into this discussion of the situation in Ukraine and sort of bolster NATO and the Western alliances, um, you know, urgency in saying we need to take a stand against this and we need to support democracies where they exist? Shay, I think you've hit, I think you've hit on a very important point. Let's be clear. Um, both uh, Mr. Putin and President Xi of China have both made public speeches and have written pieces about how what we would call uh, rules of the road, democracy, independent judiciary, uh, opposing political parties, a free press, really doesn't work. They really view that as simply inefficient, gets in the way of what has to be done. It doesn't allow them the measure of control they want to have over their societies. And they are making the case, uh, both in Southeast Asia and now in Eastern Europe, that really the authoritarian model is better. Mm-hmm. And it's very important that we do not stand back and, and fail to counter that argument, both with our own engagement and with our own military presence, because the bottom line is the last few years have not been good years for the democracies. Authoritarian governments have increased 
in the in, in the amount that exists in the world. A lot of democratic traditions and that have existed in some countries have gone. So if we believe in democracy, as I think our government does and our parliament does and our fellow Canadians do, this is one of those places where we really, really have to make a stand. Otherwise, we do face the risk of democracy itself being something which is at risk. So where does that put us? If, if NATO recognizes that and says, okay, we're going we're gonna to take a stand here, this is a line in the stand, and, and we will push back as hard as we need to. And Putin is also in a position where I think he's, he has to do something, as Biden said last week. He's walked himself into the corner where he can't just walk away from this. Um, are we headed for armed conflict in Eastern Europe? Well, I, I'm of the view that the, the larger the disincentives for Mr. Putin to invade, the more the incentives for finding an agreement. And I don't think the agreement is about necessarily when and if Ukraine is allowed to join NATO. Uh, Ukraine is many years away from having the ability, both in terms of uh, its economy, in terms of the nature of its relatively new democracy, to meet all the tests uh, for joining NATO. Uh, I think the real issue, and I think in this respect, Trudeau, may, uh, Trudeau has an opportunity to be helpful because Putin is really concerned about the placement of theater nuclear weapons, which now exist in European countries, uh, which within range of Russia. And he's saying, from a security point of view, that has to change. There is no reason this was done by Reagan and Gorbachev uh, in Reykjavik some many years ago. There's no reason there can't be an agreement on the repositioning of those weapons in a way that provides a greater measure of security for the Russians, but also, consistent with that, would be a withdrawal of the 100,000 Russian troops from the Ukrainian border uh, back to barracks so that the Ukrainians get some security out of that. So there's a balance there that is possible. And I note that uh, when Lavrov and the U.S. Secretary of State met, there was going to be a written response by the American government to the uh, demands that have been made by Mr. Putin this week, and that could be the basis of that sort of discussion. And if, from Putin's point of view, he can say, look, Ukraine is not going to join NATO at least for five years, if ever. Um, We've got a whole bunch of nuclear missiles moved in a way that increases our security. He can then say, on that basis, I'm glad to withdraw my troops. But unless we give that kind of balanced context, it's going to be difficult for him to disengage, although he doesn't face any of the internal pressures from a free press or opposition parties that politicians in Canada or other democracies normally face as part of the way in which we run our store. Well, it's good to hear that you think there's still a path to a diplomatic solution here. That's good. As long as that exists, um, there's reason to be encouraged. I agree. Um, Mr. Siegel, I, I appreciate your time very much this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Shay. Great privilege. Uh, That is Hugh Siegel, who is a former chair of the Standing Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs and a Matthews Fellow in Global Public Policy at Queen's University. So there's the latest on the situation there. Um, Now, NATO is beefing up their military presence. Um, You know, as you heard Mr. Siegel talking, and, you know, everybody's still talking diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy. Let's talk our way out of this. In the meantime... NATO said today that they are putting extra forces on standby, standby and they are sending more ships and more fighter jets into Eastern Europe. Um, that was announced today. The U.S.-led military organization said it's beefing up its deterrence presence in the Baltic Sea area. Denmark is sending a frigate and deploying F-16 warplanes to Lithuania. Spain will send warships and could send fighter jets to Bulgaria. And France says they stand ready to send troops into Romania. 
Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says NATO will take all necessary measures to protect and defend its allies. So that's where we stand. 